John 11:40. The series I begin next Sunday is I'm going to call it Showdown in the Desert. Showdown in the Desert. And I'm going to share with you on the three temptations that came to Christ. And those three temptations represent, they typify any temptation you experience, any temptation that comes to you can be found in one of the three that happened to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take three Sundays and I'm going to speak on showdown in the desert. But today I'm going to share with you on three truths that changed my life. I'm just going to talk to you out of my heart a little bit. Three truths that changed my life. I love this verse. Jesus is talking to Martha. He's already told them to roll away the stone from where her dead brother lies. And she's told Jesus something she thought he didn't know. Lord, by this time, the problem stinks. How many of you have ever had a problem that stinketh? (laughs) Isn't it funny how we tell the Lord, Lord, you don't want to come into this mess, but we don't understand Jesus died for the mess. So he is saying this to her about rolling away the stone. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now I want you to notice the progression here. Believing precedes seeing. Didn't I say to you, Martha, if you would believe, It would result in your seeing something. You would see the glory of God. How many of you in here want to see the glory of God? Life's too short to see anything else. If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for a room full of faith, people of faith with visions in their heart. And thank you, Lord, that as we believe, we're going to see the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your neighbor and tell him, I don't know what he's going to say, but I believe it's going to be good. You know, I really believe that um, this is true in so many ways. I believe that it matters what you believe about God. Tell me what you believe about God, and I will tell you some very crucial things about your future. Tell me what you believe about Christ, and I'll tell you some real crucial things about your future. It matters what we believe about God, but also I believe it matters what we believe about a lot of things if we're going to see the glory of God. I believe that Christians have been born again to see the glory of God. We have not been given a a book of religious principles, of rules and bylaws, and uh, Jesus did not come to turn us into religious robots. Jesus came to save us so that we would see the glory of God. We will never see the glory of God apart from faith. Now, apart from my believing in Jesus and turning to him for my salvation— There are several things that I have believed, that I have found to be true, that have changed my life. And I want to share three of them with you. I got to thinking about this. Well, you know, what have I believed, you know, in conjunction with believing in Christ that has changed my life, that's really made a difference in my life? So this is sort of a heart-to-heart today. 
Let me just tell you three things that I have believed that have changed my life. I've seen these things to be true anytime I've stood on them. Here's the first one. I found it to be true that we should focus on what we have, not what we don't have. Start with what you have, not what you don't have. I think that it's human nature. As soon as we're looking at a a goal or a dream or a vision, the first thing we do is we look at what we don't have. And we lose our faith and sort of the air gets let out of the balloon and we say, well, I can't do it because I really don't have what I need. But I want to tell you something today. I'm here to announce a truth to you today that everything you need to do God's will for your life, you already have it within you. He didn't call you without gifting you. And when God tells you and I to do something, he gives us what we need not to finish, but he gives us what we need to start. And when we use what we have to begin with, we find that that multiplies into enough to finish. But don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have. I was thinking about when God first called me. And I began to burn with the Holy Spirit's fire to preach. I never heard a voice tell me, um, Jeff, I am calling you to preach. Go preach. No, no. I just got in the presence of hearing the Word of God. And I got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And when I got baptized in the Holy Ghost and the fire of God's Spirit touched my heart, I found this irresistible urge, this irresistible desire to preach and to teach and to declare the Word of God. And you know what? That was when I was 18 years old. It has never left me to this day. But when he first put this on my heart, I had a contradiction going on because I was scared to death to talk in front of people. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth about me. When I would be asked to talk in front of people, from the time I was in elementary school onward, my knees would begin to shake, my lower lip would begin to tremble, one of my eyes would begin to twitch, and I would feel this this rush of red embarrassment rushing up into my face. And what the problem was is I didn't believe I had anything to offer. And yet God comes knocking on the door of my heart. If you'd have lined me up with a hundred people, I would have picked myself last to be anybody God would have put his hand on to speak the word of God. But I couldn't resist the call and the call touched my heart. I've discovered when God wants you to do something, he touches your heart. It becomes a passion, a Holy Ghost, God-given, divine passion. You don't have to lay hold of it. It lays hold of you. You don't have to hang on to it. It hangs on to you. It will not leave you alone. When God is calling you to do something, it becomes a deep-seated passion. And so I started praying for what I really did not want to do. Oh, God, please open a door for me to preach the word. And the first time somebody came to me and said, hey, our preacher is going to be gone in a couple of weeks. Would you come and share the word of God with us? I said, yes. And all the way home, kicked myself all the way home. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, couldn't concentrate. Fasted three days and nights. I went into hell. I couldn't imagine standing up. And saying anything to anybody. I had hair down to here, parted down the middle, wire rim glasses, 
When I turned sideways, you couldn't see me because I was 130 pounds soaking wet. I'd never had a suit on in my life, and I was going to step into a Baptist church and preach. I don't think they knew what they were doing. And yet God said, do it. I tried to get out of it. I called him. I said, look, some things have come up. Oh, but you've got to come because we don't have anybody else and you're already in the bulletin. And so I went. I went in blue jeans with a pullover shirt with my hair and a ponytail. I know you're going, no way, not you, Pastor Jeff. Oh, yeah, it was me. And I remember sitting in that chair waiting for them to call me up, and I was dying a thousand deaths. I thought it was the longest worship service of my life. And finally, I see them. Jeff Wickwire is here to share the Word of God. I stood up, and it was like I was watching somebody else's mouth talk from a distance back here. I didn't know what to say. I can't tell you to this day what I did say. I just spit something out. I couldn't look him in the eye. I didn't think anybody was getting anything out of it. But all of a sudden, God began to move in spite of my sheer terror. And I gave an invitation and people came down to get saved. And I walked away and I said, wow, I was looking at what I did not have, but I didn't realize he gave me everything I needed to do what he's called me to do. So I've learned, yeah. So, you know, you read in the Bible here where they were going to feed the 10,000 people or so. And Jesus turned to the disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Jesus turned to the disciples and here's 10,000 people. And he says, feed them. Now, the first thing they did was they looked at their sack lunch. They had five uh, fishes or five loaves and two fishes. That's all that they had. They looked at what they did not have. And they said to Jesus, how do you expect us to do this? How do you expect us to pull this off? How do you expect us to make this happen? All we've got is this little sack lunch. And here's what Jesus said. Give me what you have. Give me what you have. But Lord, we don't have near enough. What you have asked us to do is flat ridiculous. It is absurd. It is an absurdity that you would ask us to feed 10,000 people with what you know we don't have. And Jesus gave a principle that I've learned to live by. You don't focus on what you have or don't have. Because usually if God is telling you to do it, in the natural, you're not going to be able to do it. As a matter of fact, I've learned this about God. If I think God is telling me to do something, if it is not impossible for me left to myself, it's probably not God. He wants me to have to look to him, say, well, here's all I've got. I've got a sack lunch, Lord, and held up against 10,000 people. This looks ridiculous. And he said, give me what you have. All I want is what you have because what you have is enough to start. I've given you enough to begin. You say, I can't go to school. He's given you what you need to start. I can't do that ministry. He's given you what you need to begin. He has not left you without a sack lunch. You've got a sack lunch somewhere. And when God is telling you to do it, you can do it if you give him what you have. And it may not be much, but he doesn't need much because a little becomes a lot and a small amount becomes great when you place it into the hands of the one who can touch it and multiply it and make it flourish, not by might and not by power, but by his spirit, he does it. He pulls it off so that no man can get the glory. 
Now, I've noticed we always, as human beings, we overstate the importance of things we don't have. We look at ourselves when God calls us and we says, wow, when he tells us to do something, do a ladies ministry, do a men's ministry, go on radio, go do this, go do that, pray more, uh, uh, reach out, um, go into this business or that business. And we look at ourselves and say, I'm so incapable. I am so unable to really do this, but I'm telling you, you have what you need to begin. And if you use what you have by giving what you have to God, God will make it happen. John Burroughs said, the great opportunity is not way down the road the great opportunity is where you are you are loaded with opportunity now you have what you need to launch a miracle now elijah goes down the road he's been staying at the brook kareth the the brook dries up he says what do i do now lord the brook is dried up God said, go down the road about a mile or two. There's a widow at Zarephath, and I want you to stay there. He goes down the road to the widow's house. And he goes into the widow, and he says, I'm really hungry. Would you make me something to eat? She says, you don't understand. I don't have much. As a matter of fact, me and my little boy here, we're about to die. We've got one last meal. We're going to eat that last meal. And then I've already made up my mind, me and my son, we're going to die. Now, I want you to notice that Elijah stepped into the middle of a tragedy. He stepped into the middle of a desperate scenario. He stepped into the middle of something that was extremely gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. This woman had already made up her mind. I've got enough food for one more meal, and we've already talked about it. Me and my little boy, we're going we're gonna to die. But God sent a man, his man. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. Elijah is a picture of Christ. He is a, an Old Testament prototype of Christ. And he steps in and he says, he says what do you have? That's all I want to know. I don't want to know what you don't have. I want to know what you do have. Well, I have a handful of flour and I have a little bit of oil in a glass and that's it. It's enough for one more meal. He said, give me what you have. Just give me what you have. You make me a meal. Oh, oh, so you're going to take away the little bit that I do have left and, 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 and shorten the length of time we've got to live? He said, I'm telling you, give me what you have. If it's a little bit of money, give it to him. If it's your talent, give it to him. If it's your time, give it to him. Give him the little bit that you have. So she said, okay. She made the meal, gave it to the prophet of God, picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. It is a foreshadowing of you and me giving what we have to Jesus Christ. How many of you can say, when he saved me, I didn't have much. Really, I didn't have anything at all. Old mother's uh, Hubbard's cupboard was bare. I was bare because of sin. I was in wretchedness and blindness and nakedness, but I gave him all that I had, which was me. And if you just give him you. That's all that he needs. He'll take you and he will multiply you. He will bless you. He will fill you with the Holy Ghost. He will give you his life. He will give you his destiny and the little bit that you've got when you get saved, he will touch it. And when it comes into the hands of the nail-scarred hands of Christ, a miracle happens. So she said, here, 
She said, okay, he ate the meal. And she looked. And, I, you know, I've tried to imagine this in my, my imagination, how this possibly happened. But she used the rest of the oil in a glass, and she gave him the rest of the flour. But every time she looked, it was there again and there again and there again. And this was not David Copperfield. This was not magic. This was the multiplication of a miracle every day for a whole year. They ate three square meals a day. Multiplied oil. And what turned a little bit into a lot? When she quit looking at what she didn't have and gave him what she had. This is a truth that I have lived with. You know, Tom and I, here we, we're, we're talking about now going in front of 17,000 people. I know Tom shared the truth up here. He paced the floor at night. What have I done? But here's what we did. We started out with 100 guitars of praise. We gave him what we had. And we watched it grow and watched it grow. And now, people who said you'll never get a thousand guitars of praise together, where are you going to get a thousand guitars player, guitar players? And now, we've got more than a thousand. And by the time next week rolls around, it'll probably be a thousand thirty, a thousand forty. But I'm saying we gave him what we had. And now it's gone from small to large, from little to great. And it's only going to spread because we gave God what we had. And that's all he wants from us. Don't let what you cannot do keep you from what you can do. Because you can do a lot. You. I was talking to somebody just recently. And they said to me, she said to me, she said, my husband is so educated. He's hugely educated. As a matter of fact, he's got several upper level graduate degrees. But the problem is, he doesn't know how to how to market that. And so he's got all of this potential and all this knowledge, and yet he can't turn it over and make it happen. And as I quizzed her about it a little bit, it turned out that actually it's because he won't, he won't step out. And he won't, he won't put himself in a position where God can begin to use him. And I think one of the, one of the most wasted treasures in the world is the potential of people. Start with what you have, with where you are, and watch it grow. There's a second truth that's changed my life. And here it is. If you continue to do what's right, what's wrong and who's wrong will eventually leave your life. If you continue to do what's right... What's wrong and who's wrong will eventually leave your life. You know, I've learned I don't really have to do a whole lot to get some of the wrong people out of my life. If I just shine and gossip the gospel, most of them boogie. Have you ever noticed that? And some of you who are being tempted by peers, tempted to uh, experiment with drugs or to go drinking, to live a life that you know is wrong, some of you that are being tempted this way and you're a young person or you know that you're, you're kind of saddled up with somebody that, uh, that is not good for you, I've learned, just start doing what is right. You know, right has tremendous power. There is great power in just doing the right thing. When you don't know what to do, do what is right. Just do what is right. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's right, but the word is very clear on what's right. Right? 
And, and, and so when you don't know what, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? You do the right thing. There is such power in doing what is right. Just do what is right. When, when you're confused and you wake up and you don't know what decision to make about something and, and you're seeking guidance and you're sort of in a fog and right now you don't really know whether to go right or left or forward or backward. You don't know and you're kind of in betwixt. A, you're, you're, in, you're in limbo. You don't know what the right decision is. Then, then that's when you do for sure the right thing because the wrong way will never get you to a right destination. A businessman had a plaque on his desk And I like this. His plaque said, right is right even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. And let me tell you something, folks. Just because the majority says something is right doesn't mean the majority is right. There's a little creature, a little animal called lemming. A lemming. I think it's L-E-M-I-N-G. Lemming. They look like these little mouse creatures. And every year they do something scientists have never been able to understand. They all gather together, they congregate like a big church service, and they walk off a cliff. They walk off a cliff and they commit mass suicide every year. Keeps the lemming population down. And all of them go. And you can sit there and watch them. I've seen films. They just walk off. Oh, there goes Joe. There goes Bob. There goes Sue. Here I come. Splat, splat, splat. And they, and they jump to their demise. I said, why did God make them do that? To show us the majority is not always right. Because <laughs> if you watch the media, they'll tell you that wrong is right and right is wrong. They'll tell you that up is down and down is up. You're not going to get what is right or wrong from the media. You're sure not going to get it from our culture. You've got to get it from the Word of God. When you don't know what to do, you do what is right. And if you just do what is right, right will carry you through. Do the right thing. Doing the right thing always shortens the distance between you and your dream. Doing the wrong thing always lengthens the distance between you and your dream. Do the right thing. The right thing is a healing thing. Not only is it the right thing to do, but it heals. I tell people who, who have been in sin and who are coming out of sin, the most important thing you can do, because sin has ravaged your soul. Sin has damaged you. We're all broken. We're all broken. At the fall, we all got broke. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look out there and realize it. We want relationships to work. We want to love somebody the way we should. We want relationships, friendships, marriages, everything to work. But we find that when we try to relate, we're we're broken. We have to instill the word of God into our hearts because the fall broke us. We're like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall. And we broke. And when you look at yourself really in the word of God, it's like looking into a shattered mirror. There's shards of glass and splintered, and, and you, see a, you see a shattered, disheveled reflection in a broken mirror. Because what happened to you and me in the fall was we got broken, and we need to be healed. We need to be healed. And, and the sooner you admit, I'm broken, the better and the quicker you'll be healed. We're all broken. And so how do you, how do you get fixed 
Well, the Bible says that when you begin to walk a righteous life, it has a healing effect on your soul. Because sin has damaged you. It's damaged me. Sin has damaged us. We're like people that came out of a house fire. If you could see us in the spirit, you'd see a very damaged soul. Some more than others, depending on how long you've been with God. Yeah, he saves your soul, but then he begins to renew your mind and put you back together because sin broke you. We're broken. And I'm going to tell them that this Saturday night. You're broken in the fall. And that's why Jesus came to fix what was broken. Fix what was broken. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 13, here's the way you get healed. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame and out of joint may be healed. That's how you come into wholeness now look he just said a straight path leads to wholeness what has been out of joint in your relationships in your thinking in your habits in the way you live your life what has been out of joint and broken and lame gets healed by making straight paths for your feet i'm not talking about sinless perfection i'm talking about just obeying the lord to the best of your ability to the best of your knowledge you obey the lord and every time you say Yes, to Jesus, and you do the right thing. You forgive people, and you turn away from what you should turn away from, and you walk towards him, and you live in the word. Then he's, he's inside of you, and he's, he's putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's why sin is never worth it. And some of you, you young people, you may have somebody in your life right now telling you, try drugs. Try cocaine. Try a little bit of ecstasy. Try a little bit of crack, cocaine. Let's, you know, just, you don't have to go into it full time. Just go into it. Just try it. Listen, never, ever, 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 ever open that door. Ever. Even a crack. Never. Because you're opening a door to the devil who will destroy your Now, I know what I'm talking about. Because I'm 53 years old. I've been around a long time in the ministry. I've known a lot of people. And I came out of a drug past. I bury my old friends. See, be careful what you play with. Because what you play with can one day trap you. Don't dance around the flame too long, really at all. Unless you fall in. And suddenly, while at first you had it, now it has you. And don't think it can happen to you as a believer. Because it can Why should you need something that God gave the Holy Ghost to do? He gave the Holy Ghost to make you joyful. You don't need to snort something to get it, shoot it, toke it. Well, I'm tired of living straight, Pastor Jeff. Huh, what a stupid thing to say. If you're living straight... You need to brag on Jesus a little bit. Don't say it's something bad. You know, look at it this way. You say, hey, man, here's some crack. Come on, we've all done it. Picture yourself walking into a house fire. And just standing there burning. Would you do it? And turn to that fool and say, I love Jesus, and run 
and never touch it. Now, the only reason I'm saying this is because I know the devil's after believers. And he'll make you think you need some of that foolishness. You don't need any of it. Which leads me to my third truth. This one, boy, have I had to learn this through the years. Still don't have it fully down yet, but here it is. Happiness is a direction, not a destination. Happiness is a direction, not a destination. Now, you should know this about me. I'm very goal-oriented. From the time that I was 18 and Jesus got a hold of me, he, took, he got a hold of somebody, had no goals at all, and I became super goal-oriented. I always had a big goal in front of me. So I went for my bachelor's degree and then my master's and then my doctorate. And every time I would arrive at one goal and finish it and complete it, I'd go for the next. And I was really living to attain these goals. Very goal-oriented. When I was about 40, I remember this occurred to me. That life is mostly made up of journeying, not arrivals. You're going to spend way more time journeying towards your arrival than you are spending time in your arrival. You know, I went four years in college to walk across a stage one night. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is this what that was all about? And then I said, well, I kind of like that. So I went a few more years and walked across another stage. But I went years to walk across a stage one night. And it began to occur to me that life is way more preparation than it is receiving. That is, you're going to be journeying for years to get at what you will arrive at for a far shorter time. Jesus prepared 30 years to minister for three. Examples of this are all through the Bible. And I just began to realize, hey, here's the problem. I'm only getting a rush over my arrivals. And I'm letting my arrivals make me happy. And I considered the journey a hassle I had to go through to arrive at my arrival. Well, I hate these journeys. Man, I wish I didn't have to do all this to arrive at my arrival. And I failed to enjoy the journey. And all I got anything out of was the arrival. And I realized I was thinking like an insane CEO. A a business person, a corporate person, somebody who is real goal-oriented like me, here's what they go through. They arrive at their arrival and they go, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't what it was cracked up to be. And you hear the lonely whine of the top dog. And so many corporate heads and people who strive and push to get to a big arrival get there and get so disillusioned. They start drinking. They start doing drugs. They start doing all kinds of things because they can't handle the reality of the fact that they did not find their pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And what I've learned is God said to me one day, hey, matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something I think is true. How you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. Tell me how you walk. Tell me how you ride a bike. And it'll tell me a lot about how you do everything. I know how I rode a bike. I have a bike. I have a a 20 speed. It's got 30. I only use two of the gears. But boy, has it got a bunch. And, And I love to race this thing. And I can get out on a road and I can hit 30, 35 miles an hour on this bike. And one day, and I'm booking along. I mean, that wind is blowing through my hair. I'm cooking. I mean, my legs are just, you know, pumping and I'm moving and I'm looking at that speedometer. And here's what I'm thinking. I got to stay in shape. 
I've got to keep that stress level down, keep the cholesterol down, keep that blood pressure low. I've got a goal, and the goal is the arrival. And one day I'm pushing on this bike, and God said to me, hey, why don't you look around? I thought that was an epiphany. (laughs) The thing we do with that is you let me answer it. (laughs) Now, in the radio, they're going to wonder, for those of you listening by radio, somebody's cell phone just went off. Tom Dooley is sitting right in front of me, and he's laughing like it's real funny that I'm put in that position. And the Lord said, why don't you just stop and look around? I said, look around at what? I got a goal. And God said, you know what, Jeff? You're not enjoying the journey. You're so, you're so spiked on getting to their arrival that the arrival is the only thing you're enjoying. But life is not mainly arrivals. Life is mainly journey. Most of your time is going to be spent journeying, not arriving. So you need to slow down and enjoy every day. Enjoy the journey so that when you get to your arrival, your arrival is just the cherry on top of the Sunday. You've been enjoying the journey so that when you walk across, in essence, a stage and you arrive, you say, ah, oh, you know, this is okay. But you know what? I sure had joy getting here. See, Jesus came to give us life and that more abundantly. He did not come to take away our joy, take away our fun, to turn us into freaks, to take away everything by which we would enjoy life. He said, I have come to give you abundant life in the here and now and heaven later. And so I want you to enjoy your life, enjoy your every day. A lot of believers don't seem to think this is the case. I can tell by their face. Some of them, if they smile, their face cracks and that's not the will of God. You know, the greatest painting I ever saw of Jesus and when I find it, I'm gonna buy it. I can't find it. I'm going to find it. Here's what he was. Here was Jesus in the middle. He had one arm thrown around John's shoulders, the other arm thrown around Peter's shoulders, and his head is leaned back, and he is just roaring. And they're laughing. And I thought, I believe that. I believe that's the way he was. How could he say, I came to give you life, even though I'm hating every minute of it. I can't wait to get back to heaven. Praise God, this is hell down here. How could you possibly believe a man who said, I came to give you abundant life right here on earth, if he looked like that? I think Jesus enjoyed life. I think he laughed. I think he had fun with the disciples. I think they fellowshiped and he enjoyed it. I think it was common for him to smile. And so Jesus, even though he knew he was going to a cruel, tormenting cross, he still enjoyed life on the way. Henry Ward Beecher said, the strength of a man consists in finding out the way God is going and going that way. Do you want to enjoy your life? Find out the way God is going and go that way. 
My dog enjoys life more than I do. Well, I'm learning, but I'm learning from Ollie. Because I'll take Ollie for walks, and I walk the same way I ride a bike. Come on, Ollie. We got to keep this, you know, how you walk like this to get your heart going. I was like, come on, Ollie, because even Ollie stops to sniff things. He, I mean, he, and he has buddies on the way. There's dogs, and he knows right where they're going to be. I'm serious. He'll start pulling that leash. He knows right where Fred is and Joe and their Sue down there. And he stops, and they talk. And I know what they're saying. He's dragging you along again. He won't let you stop and enjoy anything, will he? No, but I'm praying for him. <laughs> oh, my. So at least he, he knows how to enjoy the journey. And so I've had to stop and say, you know, so now I'm trying. Ollie's teaching me. Jesus is teaching me. I need help with this because I'm very intense and goal-oriented. So I'm learning when Ollie stops to talk to one of his buddies, I get down and I talk too. <laughs> one of them's name is Sooner. Sooner, that's the name of the dog. Hey, Sooner, it's me and Ollie again. You back there? And there he comes. Go ahead, Ollie, talk. And I just wait. And when they're done fellowshipping, we go on. <laughs> we just go on. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's really exaggerating here. No, I'm not. I'm not. Because I don't want to make a few arrivals in life and realize that I never did stop and enjoy the journey. And I don't think you're going to make it to some of your really big arrivals unless you do that. Because you're going to burn out on the way. Listen to the way the, the arrival, or the journey rather, of the righteous is described. And I'm going to close with this. The path or journey of the just is like a shining light. And it shines greater and greater and greater to the perfect day. So there's this progress of, on the journey of people who are walking in righteousness. It gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. How? From glory to glory, faith to faith, strength to strength by the Spirit of the Lord. So here's the journey of the righteous as the Bible sees it. It is from glory to glory, strength to strength, victory to victory, faith to faith, So there is this sense of a progress, a journey that is enjoyable, not some misery. So can I just get it in your mind today? Don't be a prune face around here. The Lord wants you to enjoy your life in him. And I've learned this. I've learned. I've learned that the main thing is that I enjoy the journey Because happiness is in the journey. It's in going the right direction. Happiness is a direction. It's not the destination. If you're going the right direction, you're going to be happy. Can we stand together? I want you to say with me, 
I'll focus on what I have, not what I don't have. I'm going to keep doing what is right. And my happiness is in a direction, not a destination. Now shout with me, I'm going to enjoy the journey. And that's the name of Tom's show, The Journey. How did I think of that till just now? The journey. It's a journey. It's a journey. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. Lord, help us to do the right thing always. And we know that even when we're confused, that'll lead us rightly. And Lord, we ask you to help us to stop and smell the flowers and enjoy the journey and slow down and praise you, think to thank you and pause to praise you and let your presence permeate every day and not put all all of our eggs in the basket of an arrival. Help us to live Christianity in a way that will make it attractive to other people. In Jesus' name. Now I want you to take a minute. Steve's going to lead us in a simple song and I want you to If any of these areas in your life need some realignment, then go ahead and pray about it before we go today, can you? Amen. Take this time as Steve sings. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord.